Hello, strong, feisty women. Some of you may recognize my voice. I'm Celine Yeager, host of the Hit Play Not Pause podcast. Throughout my career as a professional health and fitness writer and now a podcaster, I hear countless questions from women who are trying to understand how their ever-changing hormones impact their sports performance. So we decided to serve up some answers in a brand new series called Hormonal that we will be releasing on the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast feed. Throughout this four-part series, reproductive endocrinologist Dr. Carla DiGirolamo and I will be tackling topics like periods, the pill, pregnancy, and conditions like PCOS, all from the perspective of sports performance. If you aren't already, follow the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast and stay tuned for our first episode releasing on April 15th. Also, have questions you want answered? Send us a voice note at speakpipe.com slash hormonal and we'll get it answered on the show. You are listening to the Girls Gone Gravel podcast, a podcast for women who are chasing epic and everyday adventures on their bikes. We are a production of Live Feisty Media and hosted by Christy Moan and Katherine Taylor. How are you doing? Uh, I am fabulous, and I mean it. How are you, Catherine? <laughs> you seem to be much more energized than when I talked to you three days ago. Because we're know when it was. <laughs> we're recording this on Thursday, which we normally do. No, wait. Today's Wednesday. We don't know when it, what day it is. It doesn't matter. Well, it's COVID, so <laughs> we don't have to know. We don't have to know what day it is. Yeah, That's and it's a holiday week, quote unquote, mm-hmm. holiday week, except for. All the fireworks and everything are canceled here in Atlanta. <laughs> oh, we, we, well, you should come to Kansas. <laughs> I'll get in the car right because now. Because we're blowing everything up. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, you guys have been blowing everything up there. It's, oh God, thank you for that. <laughs> um, and, and it's, uh, well, it's not only 4th of July weekend, but something that you don't know is it's uh, Tim Fest. What's so? Synthest? Well, it's my husband's birthday oh. and he declared many, many, many years ago, like 12 or 13, that the week needed to be known as Tim Fest culminating in the fireworks on the 4th of July. So my husband's turning 52. Um, and you know, we're celebrating Tim Fest, but in a very quiet, like COVID way. Yeah. Very quiet COVID way. Seriously. Like it's the kids are coming over and it's like, it's the quietest Tim Fest we've ever had. But he reminded me on Sunday that Tim Fest had started, which means he gets to pick the movies and ugh, we don't have the same taste. <laughs> Love him. Not the same taste in movies. Oh so. no. What kind of stuff does he like? Um, he's all serious documentary. Um, 
he loves a good Western. Um, like my problem is that I seriously, when I watch TV, it's to like numb my brain. Cause I, my brain just doesn't like stop. Yeah. So Same. like I want like a romantic comedy, um, something a little bit bordering on s- stupid. He <laughs> yeah. would call it. And he gets these movies in that make me have to think. And I'm always just like, I'm having to think right now. And I didn't want to have to think right now. So, yeah. But yeah. So Tim Fest is in, in full works for his birthday. So, yeah, that, well, um, that sounds like way more fun than life in Atlanta this week. (laughs) All of the fireworks displays were canceled, which they usually have three big ones here. Oh, wow. The big thing that always happens, that has happened for as long, almost as long as your husband has been alive, this would have been the 51st running of the Peachtree Road Race. Oh. A big 10K. It's the biggest 10K in the world. Um, And it always happens every 4th of July. And it's like, there's the, um, what Laura King would call protocol, like the Mm -hmm. uh, serious business in the front where people are like, like we've had Gwen Jorgensen and world-class athletes come and race it for money. And then there's literally people that do it as the beer 10 K. So they dress in costumes and see how many beers they can drink along the route. Oh man. And it, ta- it starts at like six fifty in the morning. And I think the last wave typically goes off at like, I don't know, 10 30, 11. So it's just going off. Obviously nobody wants to be in a crowd of 60,000 people right now. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, that's our big tradition here. So instead I'm going to my parents' place and my mom called me yesterday to let me know that their pool has opened, but I have to take my own chair. (laughs) That's That's so sweet. (laughs) (laughs) And Catherine, bring your own chair. (laughs) It's their neighborhood pool, but, and I have to sign a waiver. (laughs) Do they take your temperature? No, I don't think so. Cause it's the pool. But I yeah. have been going to a new gym and um, they take our temperature every time we show up. I'm like, I think that's one of the things we, I was on a ride this morning and we were talking about gyms and I'm like, to me that those seem, if the gym is following protocol, they seem like they should be safe and, and wow. we should be, a, be able to have those open. Um, uh, like I just, I think if health and wellness was at the forefront of our country's medical plan that you know, we'd understand how important it is to have the gyms open and, and, you know, not having the classes and having the space between the, the machines and having all the wipe down protocol. And and you also have people that are going there that are, you know, tend to be healthy. I just, I'm struggling with why we're closing the gyms, but yeah, this is not like one of those big box gyms. It's more, um, it is. So there can only be 10 people there at a time. And normally it would be like, you just go, whenever. Um, but they, they do have spots set out. So like you have to stay in your square, the trainer will bring your equipment, you get your temperature taken, you get hand sanitizer when you come in. Um, but it's a really interesting concept because they're building community, but when you sign up, you get a trainer that creates a program for you. Mm -hmm. Um, and my trainer is great. You know, I told her like, I love cycling. I want to be strong and be able to continue cycling for a long time. And so it's really cute though, because um, I'm like, well, you know, I want to do the strength three days a week and then I'm going to do cycling stuff like probably 
two to three days a week. And so every weekend she'll write like this, like warm up with jumping jacks and like squats and stuff <laughs> and write 45 to 60 minutes of cycling. And then I put in two and a half hours to three hours of cycling. <laughs> so, so our, you know, concept of what a long workout is <laughs> varies. Oh yeah. No, I totally can relate to that. Like, no, I'm not going to go for an hour. I'm going to go for like four. What? Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I was like 45 minutes. That's not enough time to like, that's all the gear and then having to clean the gear. Like that's not even worth it. Yep. I agree. Yeah. Speaking of cleaning gear and taking care of your bike, sitting on a bike. <laughs> I'm trying oh, yeah. to you're, you're tra- Oh, you're doing a Catherine Taylor transition. <laughs> I am. Hey, you know what? We talked to one of my friends this week. We did. <laughs> so exciting. So we actually interviewed Chloe Murdoch, who if some of the people that have been in the the group, the Facebook group, might have seen a couple of webinars she did. And there's still the one on bike fitting is still online, but um, you can get it on the YouTube channel. But she is fantastic. She did my bike fits here in Atlanta. So she's a physical therapist um, and she is a bike fitter and she specializes in um, pelvic floor things, issues. I forgot. She has a fancy way of saying it because she's super smart. Um, she's super smart, but it was, this is worth a listen all the way to the end for sure. Yeah. Well, also because she talks about, she no longer lives in Atlanta and what gravel cycling is like in Switzerland where she now lives at the very end. So anyway, I think everybody will really enjoy Chloe. She just opened uh, basically a new online business. So if you're in a space where you can't get to a bike fitter, she's got a website that she puts out all kinds of really great information that you can kind of learn about your bike, your body, what's going on. And then she's going to start doing some uh, online consulting where you can send her videos and she can give you feedback of, is this problem a bike fit issue or is this like a, a strength issue? Is it an issue that's an injury issue? And what order should you kind of fix things in? So mm-hmm. it save you a lot of time and money. So um, we will get on to our interview with Chloe Murdoch. Hey, Catherine, I'm so excited that Gooders Come On is one of our sponsors. I know we love Gooders sunglasses because they come in so many fun colors and sassy fun names. Like I got Lance's afternoon uppers. And I got rosé before (laughs) brosé. They're really fun. And they're also performance sunglasses. So they're no slip, no bounce, and polarized. They start at a ridiculously low price of $25 a pair. (laughs) Which means that Gooder is generously offering our listeners nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all. You do not need a discount when you already have the most affordable performance shades on the planet. So go to gooder.com slash feisty and that's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash feisty now. These glasses even look good with mud on them. They do. (laughs) Welcome to this week's Girls Gone Gravel. We've got um, my co-host Catherine's here with me and we have um, one of Catherine's friends, um, uh, Chloe Murdoch is joining us today on the podcast. So welcome, Chloe. Thank you. I'm so excited to have one of my friends finally. (laughs) My 
friend, Catherine. You're, you're not. Every week when we have a guest, it's like, this is Christy's friend. And I was like, <laughs> we're going to have one of my friends on soon. It's pretty exciting. But Chloe and I know each other. Um, Chloe does not live in Atlanta anymore, sadly. But we know each other uh, through, we both used to work at the same bike shop in Atlanta. Uh, I did marketing for the shop, and she was our awesome bike fitter. So I know you, Chloe, but why don't you tell uh, Christy and everyone else a little bit about your background and how you ended up um, bike fitting and, and the other cool thing that you do that makes you to be an interesting bike fitter. Yeah, sure. Um, so I started bike fitting maybe eight or nine or 10 years ago. I'm not quite sure. Um, my professional background is as a physical therapist and I started bike fitting uh, because as a physical therapist, when I'm working with athletes, you know, a huge component of what we do as physical therapists is to analyze their movement. And when working with a runner, of course, I would always watch somebody run and potentially work on their running technique and their running form at some point in their treatment. Um, But when working with a cyclist or a triathlete, if we're not watching them ride and we're not able to understand what proper mechanics on the bike look like and how their bike might be adversely affecting those or how their body might be adversely affecting their mechanics, then we're missing a huge component of what's going on with that athlete. Um, So I started doing bike fits because it was really necessary to comprehensively treat my patients. On a personal level though, I've been a lifelong cyclist so I just love tinkering around with bikes. And so it was, I would say, equal parts, um, you know, professional interest and just a personal interest because I love riding bikes myself. So how, how did you become, did you go to a school or a class or what, what brought you to that? Yeah, it was kind of a hodgepodge mix of, um, you know, didactic learning in, you know, a classroom setting and uh, harassing people to mentor me until they would help me <laughs> along in the process, uh, as well as just kind of self-educating um, through, you know, looking at the research, uh, et cetera. But it was, you know, at the time, there was not a straightforward, clear pathway to follow to become a bike fitter. Um, there are more options now, but it's still not very standardized. And so, I mean, to answer your question initially, I I did go to some bike fitting classes when I was uh, working as a PT in Portland, Oregon. And so there's, you know, a huge population of cyclists and bike fitters in the north in the um, northwest. Uh, And so I went to some classes there. Uh, I did find a mentor there. I harassed some guys in the local bike shop um, and they became kind of allies of mine and helped me from kind of the industry side of things uh, quite a bit. And when I moved to Atlanta, I connected through a friend with uh, a bike shop owner there who helped me personally quite a bit. And then I kind of continued and went through uh, some other bike fitting uh, courses. So, you know, I've, I've worked with uh, Paul Swift at Bike Fit and his wife, Kit, who's a biomechanist and a physical therapist and who's fantastic, uh, as well as Dan, Dan Enfield um, and the slow twitch um, fitting method and education track that he has but it's been a lot of piecing it together to tell you the truth well that brings you with a big background then like super variety and i'm sure that's probably pretty helpful yeah it's definitely helpful it was very um i would say it was very frustrating at the beginning (laughs) 
um, because the, I mean, there's such a steep learning curve and there was, you know, I, everyone, when they start bike fitting, just makes so many mistakes. <laughs> As you know, cyclists can be a very, uh, you know, type A bunch. And so there's not a lot of room for error there. So I was offering a lot of free bike fits. I was spending everybody I knew who would, who would give me a couple hours of their time. Um, but yeah, I do think that having a diverse background helped quite a bit. And looking back on it now, I would say that, that yeah, having, you know, some experience in obviously movement assessment and, you know, strength training and as a physiotherapist, um, has helped immensely. Um, and then the mentors I found along the way have been so, so helpful in just filling in the gaps. So I've never asked you this, Chloe, and I've known you for a while, but but what do you like about bike fitting? Why do you like being a bike fitter? <laughs> well, for me, it's kind of the it's it's the intersection of my career as a physical therapist and the things I like about that job, which are getting to really know a patient or a client in depth, um, getting to understand what their goals are and what their drivers and their motivators are, um, and then to help to combine their goals and their desires and their deficiencies um, with a movement assessment that allows me to understand what might be driving some of those problems and what we need to change to help them to help that person meet their goals. It's the intersection between that component, which I consider more physical therapy, um, and playing around with bikes. I mean, <laughs> bikes are, you know, my favorite toy to play with. Uh, I love cycling myself. Being in a bike shop, I think, is a is a great environment to be in, um, at least in the ones that I've been in. And they're just uplifting places. Working in a physical therapy clinic and working with people who are injured and in pain, um, it can can get heavy at times. You know, like people are coming to see me because they have a problem that can be very, very much affecting their life in a negative way. And so that can be a very serious environment. Um, and working in a bike shop, although cyclists often come in because they have a specific complaint. Um, it's much more of a positive experience and, you know, people are often walking out with a bike that feels a lot better. And so there's a much, um, a much faster turnaround from, you know, being in pain to being, uh, efficient and comfortable and being able to enjoy your pastime again. And then I get to help people buy new bikes, which is also a, a fun and great experience. What's the most common mistake that people are making? when they're, when they're getting, before they come and see you, like what's the most common problem that you address? Is it like, like what's, the most, or? what's the most common complaint they come in with? Yeah. Or, or, or the, the most that like, I always see people on bike. I'm like, I just want to go over and raise their seat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'm like, I'm like, what's the most common one? Like, what's the most common? There has to be kind of a common denominator that most people make the same mistake or beginners are making this mistake of, of like, you know, yeah. because I think I, I've always said, I think if, if you're on a bike that fits you well and it's a good machine, there's no way you're not going to love cycling. It's yeah. such a great activity. So, you know, I think if, if it's causing you pain, yeah. then that, then you're not going to love it. Right. So yeah, for sure. I would say that, I mean, definitely the most common complaint I get has to do with the saddle, hands down. Saddle pain is the number one complaint I hear about. And if it's not something that they're complaining about when they come in or they're unhappy with, 
then it's underlying what their complaint is. <laughs> and so it all comes back to the saddle. I mean, every cyclist who's been riding for more than a couple of years has a collection in the closet um, because, you know, it's, it's hard to find the right saddle. And so that's the biggest complaint for sure and the biggest problem that people experience, especially women. Um, and I would say that the, the biggest um, the mistake that I see most often when it comes to bike fit well, I mean, everyone on the, the evening group ride is an expert in bike fit. And so <laughs> I, would, I would say, and so is everyone on, on every blog on, on, the, on the internet. So I would say the biggest mistake that people make when it comes to bike fit is to, t is, um, to take anecdotal advice from their, from their buddies. <laughs> <laughs> So don't listen to me when I say you should raise your seat. <laughs> You're probably right. <laughs> yeah, the raising the seat is a, it's a pretty easy one to spot. But uh, so one of the other things that I know you specialize in in your physical therapy side of things is, um, is the whole, well, I like to call it like the girly bits or stuff like that. But you told me I can't call it that. Um <laughs> Yeah, don't call it that. <laughs> so you call it uh, like basically uh, your pelvic, what is it? Your pelvic floor, floor specialist. So uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, that and issues women might have with cycling and how um, bike fit and PT can help them. Because I think that's an interesting intersection, especially a lot of women who maybe have had children. And it's even women that haven't had children. As I also learned at the bike shop, even men could have these issues so yeah exactly so um I do treat pelvic floor dysfunction as a physical therapist and the pelvic floor is really the group of muscles that make up the base of the core uh, and so if you think of the the core um as a canister I think that's helpful and the muscles that make up the core that we often, we're most often thinking of are the, the deepest muscles that surround the spine and the deepest muscle that forms the, uh, the abdominal wall and the, on the sides and the front. Um, but the two, uh, the top and the bottom of the canister are equally as important. And so the top of that canister is the diaphragm and the bottom of the canister is the pelvic floor. And all of those deep muscles work in coordination with one another in order to manage pressure inside of the abdominal cavity. And so that's how the core works. Um, the pelvic floor can become problematic for many, many reasons. Um, and it's a specialty within physical therapy because often I'm diagnosing and I'm treating patients internally. And so that's obviously, you know, a specialized skill that not every physical therapist has or is interested in doing. Um, but Pelvic floor dysfunction is uh, very, very common. It's more common in women than men. Um, and it's often undetected because there's not a, you know, not many medical professions, professionals are screening for it. And even, you know, gynecologists, for example, may not be asking questions that would uncover some mild pelvic floor dysfunction that might present if someone is an Ironman triathlete and really, you know, stressing their pelvic floor in a way that the average Joe Schmo is not. And so 
you know, the pelvic floor can be what I call kind of like a lurking culprit or an underlying problem that's not symptomatic until someone stresses uh, stresses their body so much that it becomes symptomatic. And often that activity can be running or cycling. And so uh, pelvic floor dysfunction, you know, common types of pelvic floor dysfunction could be, for example, urinary incontinence, which is very, very common uh, in women who have had children. It's common, but it's not normal. Um, pelvic floor dysfunction could be uh, that those that muscle group is has too much muscle tone and it's not able to relax fully. And muscles that have trigger points, as you know from other muscles, if you get a trigger point in your quad or in your calf, that thing really, really hurts when you apply pressure to it. And so if you are sitting on a bike seat that's maybe not ideal for you and you have trigger points in your pelvic floor, that can lead to a painful situation. Um, and so really, I, the way the pelvic floor relates to cycling is more in uh, the context of how the entire core works. And if the pelvic floor is dysfunctional, it can cause a whole, you know, a whole slew of problems on the bike, like not being able to sit symmetrically on the saddle, uh, not being stable on the saddle. And those two things can lead to saddle sores, which are, you know, a huge, huge problem for many people. Uh, yeah, and so it's it's an area that I um, I taught. It's a you know subject subject I screen for with every cyclist I work with in the bike shop, male and female. And there are some pretty easy screening questions I can ask um, to usually pick up on these things to know if I need to you know delve further into that at a, at another time. Wow, I think I might have pelvic floor issues. <laughs> I was gonna say you you had <laughs> twins and you. Uh, Ride your bike a long way. You're, a long way. <laughs> you need to fly to Switzerland right now to see Chloe. All right. <laughs> Except for we can't get in the country. Oh yeah, that's right. True. That's what I was trying to ask. I forgot. Like where where you were? Where you actually? Since you're not in Atlanta now, Chloe, you're in Switzerland. So I know. Look out the window. We have a sun shower right now. Oh my gosh. That does not suck. Yeah. It's like yeah. It's like Chloe is showing us a gorgeous view of her out of her window, which she lives on the lake in Zurich. So um, I'm already planning a <laughs> Girls Gone Gravel trip there. If anybody wants to sign up 2021 or 2022. <laughs> when available. When we're free to travel again. <laughs> I think when you were talking about the pelvic floor and the saddle, it made me really start thinking about you know, in the industry, in the bike industry, there's been this whole thing for women's, the women's um, specific stuff, which has kind of been based around the shrink it and pink it motto. But I would think that this, the saddle stuff is probably pretty important for the women's specific designs. Yeah, it is. And, you know, there are so many saddles out there. And, you know, I have I have found that um, many women are very comfortable and efficient on a men's saddle as well. Mm -hmm. And so just because it's build a women's saddle does not mean that it's going to be comfortable for many women. Um, because, you, you know, finding the right saddle is, you know, it's dependent on so many things. It's it's dependent on finding the saddle that fits your, your measurements. So like the size of your pelvis, your bony pelvis, which is really the easiest part because it's very easy to determine. But the more challenging part is finding a saddle that matches the bike, the position that your body wants to be in on the bike. 
And so if you're someone who is pretty stiff, you're not going to be able to tolerate a bike position where your handlebar is really low. You have a very aggressive position, a lot of drop down to the handlebar. And so, you know, first and foremost, you need to find a position where your body can tolerate being in that position for hours on end. And then you need to find a saddle that allows you to sit in that position. And you need to have the core stability to stay still when you're on it. So, you know, I think the problem with finding the right saddle is not that there is a lack of saddles out there because there are a million options, um, but rather, you know, I think often in the bike fit process, a huge component is overlooked. And that is that, you know, we as humans are, are not symmetrical. We're not structurally symmetrical and we're never functionally symmetrical. And so if we put that asymmetrical um, moving body on top of a stationary bike that's hard <laughs> and, and you're trying to ride in that fixed position for hours on end, I mean, there are going to be issues unless you um, address your own asymmetries. And that's the part that takes a little while to, it, it takes some skill to diagnose, but then it takes a while to change and fix that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, some people aren't invested in that. Uh, they don't want to do it. They don't have the financial means to do it. Um, or they may not be led down that road by their bike fitter. But I think that's where most of the problems arise, to tell you the truth. Well, so how, sorry, Catherine, this, like, you, you brought up something that, that's interesting to me because I've heard people say this, like working around a lot of beginners, you know, you're going to have some inherent discomfort when you're first starting out, right? Because you're just, it's just something new. So if you're new to this and you're, and you're getting on a bike and you're trying it, how long should you maybe have some shoulder pain or neck pain or, or pelvic pain? Like what's, what's okay and acceptable. And then when is it not? And you do need to go see a bike fitter or get some extra help. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I would say that if you consider the cost of buying a bike and, you know, the costs related to, any type of exercise you might pursue, whether that be road biking where your only expense is, you know, the purchase of the bike and the maintenance every year and maybe the bike rack to transport it, um, to being a triathlete where you're spending hundreds of dollars every race, the investment in a bike fit is such a small part of that and yet it has a huge impact on your enjoyment in the sport. And so I would really argue that everyone getting into the sport should have a bike fit from the beginning so that they don't have these problems down the road (laughs) because it prevents so many issues. And, you know, someone's enjoyment uh, in the sport completely depends on their comfort. And so if they're not able to stay on a bike for more than two hours because their saddle just kills, then they're going to abandon the sport anyway. (laughs) So, I mean, you really run that risk if you don't have a fit up front. Um, So I would say everyone needs a fit up front, but... To answer your question about what's acceptable pain and what isn't, you know, if we're talking about the saddle specifically, and if we start with that just because it's the most common complaint I hear, um, you know, normal signs of discomfort are, you know, pressure discomfort. You're sitting on a small, hard surface for a couple hours, you know, in a position that you're not used to. And so if you're having pressure discomfort that is annoying, but it's not the only thing that you're thinking about, I would say that you have to give that some time to adjust to. Of course, wearing the, you know, shorts that are fitting well and they're not bunching and chafing is certainly going to help that. But, 
you know, mild numbness from sitting in place and not standing up off the saddle. Um, if that numbness alleviates within, you know, very quickly when you take the pressure off the saddle, I would argue that that's not abnormal. That's fine. Um, if you're having mild swelling in your vulvar area from where the pressure actually, for women, where the pressure is actually applied to the saddle, uh, if that's if you have some mild residual swelling that that resolves in you know 15 30 minutes after you get off the bike I would say that that's not a big deal because your body is able to clear out that fluid but if you have swelling that lasts for you know 12 and 24 hours and longer that's not normal and the longer you ignore things like that the worse they're gonna get saddle sores are also common but they're not normal and so pay attention to those because people often get saddle sores in the same spot on the same side. And so that's telling you something, you know, there's something underlying that. And then in terms of just, you know, soreness, like if, if you're a beginner and you just bought your first gravel bike, you go out for your first two hour ride and your neck and your shoulders and your wrists and your elbows are sore. Well, yeah, I mean, you're doing a new sport. It's a new demand on your body, you know? And so if you follow kind of tissue adaptation, um, principles where it takes your your tissues, your tendons, and your muscles a certain amount of time to adapt to that new activity. If you ramp up your riding at a reasonable pace, and that soreness resolves within you know 24, 48 hours after you get off the bike, and it's gradually decreasing over time, uh, and it's not adversely affecting you off the bike, then I would say that's something you're going to outgrow. Perfect. I have a funny story on that. This is before I knew you, Chloe, but my when I started riding in triathlon primarily and I did uh, this ride up in the Blue Ridge Parkway, like a seven hour ride to train and I had on bike shorts that were too big, a brand new bike with no fit and probably the wrong saddle. <laughs> and I, we were at a triathlon camp and um, so we were sharing rooms and triathletes aren't very modest at all. Especially like if you come from a swimming background and my uh, roommate and I both had come from a swimming background. So we're changing and I take my bike shorts off. I'm like, something is very wrong. And she goes, oh my God. I was like, it was quite a saddle sore. (laughs) It was very visible. (laughs) So that, all those things are the bad things to do if you're going to go for a long ride. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's like it's like Heidi eating the twenty bananas on her first. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I cry. Yeah, that was uh, yeah. the things we do when we don't know better, and then we know better, and we're like, why did we ever do that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I know that uh, I've asked you this question before, but how do you find a good bike fitter? I know, like, there's no standardization for bike fit like you're a physical therapist so somebody has to say you're a licensed physical therapist but I could say I'm a bike fitter right so how can you find somebody that you're like this is a good solid person that isn't like just somebody that's like I really like bikes yeah I mean I think the you know the first step is obviously you can kind of vet them online and 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 find out the basic stuff like you know if they have certifications um and where you know how long they've been bike fitting uh, you know, those are easy, easy things that you can usually find out in someone's bio. Um, but I think a really valid question um, to ask a bike fitter is what their approach is and what dictates uh, how they arrive at the culmination of the bike fit. How do they arrive at this new position 
and what their rationale is for moving someone into that position, um, and what are the confirmers that that is the right position. And so, for example, there are some schools of bike fit where that are very protocolized, and bike fits are very much driven by numbers uh, and angles, for example. And so, you can have markers on different bony landmarks on your body. And there are normative ranges that a fitter might want to get you in. And they're really striving to get you within those angles uh, without necessarily looking at the, huge, at, the, at the big picture and, you know, asking the question, is this the right position for this person, yes or no? And so I think asking a bike fitter um, what their approach is and how do they know if that's the right, how, did, how are they confirming that that's the right position for you once you're in that new position? Those are great, great questions to ask. And a bike fitter should be able to answer those questions. Yeah. I, following up on that, I wanted to, because I think a lot of people don't understand what a, a solid bike fit might entail. And so the first time I got bike fit, which might've been my problem on this first ride, was just like I sat on a bike and somebody moved my saddle up a little bit. But talk about, talk through what, if I came to you for a bike fit, which I have, what all would happen? Yeah, so I start my, um, kind of the process I go through is, is similar with most people. Um, I would say 75% of the people that I do a bike fit uh, for, I don't know beforehand, so I don't have any background. And so I always start by, chatting with them and really getting a, a thorough subjective history. Um, you know, I think that's something that I learned as uh, a physical therapist that if you ask the right questions and you gather enough information from the beginning, then it really steers the direction of your examination or in this case, the bike fit uh, without, you know, as efficiently as possible. So you're not wasting time. And really what I'm trying, the information I'm trying to gain from that subjective conversation is why is that person here to see me? What is their what is their goal in coming to see me? Do they have a specific complaint? Um, did they come because someone said they have to because their position is screwed up and you know they're a little resistant to be there in the first place, which can be the case? Um, or are they there to see me because they have a bike fit a bike fit every two years and they want to make sure that they're as efficient as possible? So I have to understand what their goal is in coming in. And then I have to understand their history. I need to understand uh, what their history in the sport is, uh, what their history in other sports, their injury history, et cetera, et cetera. And then what their, what their life is like. Um, how much are they training right now? Do they have any races coming up this season? And what is their, what is their bandwidth for change? You know, if someone comes in and they're an executive and they're training for, you know, their first Ironman, that, and they have a family, that person doesn't have a lot of time and energy to fix all these small things. So that has to be a consideration. This needs to be efficient. It needs to be safe. It needs to get them out the door. I'm probably not going to see that person again because she has a million things going on. Um, and so after that, I'm going to watch that cyclist on their bike, and I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to assess how that person is riding, uh, what position that person has been in for the last over many years to know where they're coming from. And then I do an off-the-bike assessment where I'm really looking at, I would say, eight to ten key things that I can run through in ten minutes 
um, that give me a lot of information about uh, big red flags that might be lurking that could really affect the way someone rides the bike. And that information is so useful because when I gather that information up front combined with their injury history and whatever their goals are, I can really answer the question at the end of the bike fit, how much of your complaints, so let's say someone comes in with knee pain, which is a common complaint. How much of that knee pain is being caused by your bike fit? And how much of that knee pain is being caused by your body? So extrinsic versus intrinsic factors. Um, and so once I have that basis, then I'm going to go take that client onto the fitting bike and we're going to go through the whole fit process on that fitting bike, moving through different positions. I'm going to be asking them for very specific feedback, depending on what I'm manipulating, what change I'm making to their bike position based on that feedback. And then based on how their movement quality is changing throughout the course of the fit, we finish it there, um, their ideal position for them at that moment in time. And then I get them off the bike, take those measurements. I will retrofit their bike to meet that new position or recommend a new bike that will allow them to achieve that new position. And for many people, I will give them a couple or a handful of key specific exercises to address whatever intrinsic limitations I found during that whole process. So for a triathlete, it might be as simple as, you know, you're lacking 20 degrees of shoulder flexion and one shoulder, and that's really affecting your ability to, you know, drop down comfortably in an up. And so maybe that person needs two things to retrain their diaphragm and gain length in their in their latissimus muscle. And I send them off with the new bike position, uh, a PDF of their uh, their bike uh, specs, their new bike fit specs. And I send them an email afterwards with a summary of all the changes we made uh, and what they can expect in the upcoming weeks, which is really important uh, to establish reasonable expectations because when you change someone's bike position and you're asking them to go along with your recommendations and potentially do some exercises and change the way that they ride, there's going to be a breaking in and an adaptation period associated with that. And so it's so, so important that I communicate to that person and then I write it down so they don't forget um, that I expect that your, let's say, your hamstrings are going to be sore for the next three weeks. Don't worry. I expect that. It's normal. Give it four weeks and you will accommodate the new crank length and everything's going to be great. But they have to walk out of there understanding what my expectations for this process are. So it's definitely much more detailed than the person at the group ride telling you to adapt your saddle. One thing that I do think is interesting, and I know not every bike shop can have it, but um, the fit bike really is, I was kind of skeptical about it, but just because if you've ever seen a fit bike, like the bike fitter can adjust um all the positions while you're on the bike. So I compare it to like when you go to the eye doctor and they're like, is this one better or this one? Like you can feel those little tiny adjustments. And so I think um, just if you find a bike shop or a bike fitter that has a fit bike, sometimes that can make a big difference too. Um, because if not, you have to get off your bike and then they move the saddle forward an inch or back, you know, like, or not even an inch, like just a little tiny bit. So that makes a huge difference. It, it allows uh, it allows a rider to feel in real time what the difference of five millimeters feels like. Which, when you get off the bike and you have to wait for you know 
90 seconds to adjust something to get back on, I mean, that, that can really be lost. And it can be a, a never-ending process on top of that. I mean, people have limited time and they have a limited attention span to deal with this stuff. I mean, we're talking about minutiae here. So, you know, if I ask someone to get on off their bike 15 times, I mean, every time they get off that bike, <laughs> they're, they're losing a little bit of uh, a little bit of attention, a little bit of patience, a little bit of trust. <laughs> gotta be efficient <laughs> what I mean that's it's kind of one of those things too. going back to somebody that's looking at trying to do this what what would you expect to pay and I know there's gonna be like a huge range and whatnot but what what should a bike fit kind of cost generally speaking yeah you know it it depends on your location and the market you're in certainly um, you know I would I would say that um, a qualified bike fitter that is, you know, assessing in some capacity uh, the things that I mentioned in, in the process that I go through, um, and they're then delivering a couple things at the end. Those deliverables being your bike fit specs, uh, expectations going forward, and a bike that is now fit in this new position. Um, you know. I would, that should all be able to take place within about two hours or so. Now, there are certainly bike fits that are longer that integrate a lot more technology, and I completely understand how that works uh, and why those appointments need to be longer. If you're looking at pressure mapping, uh, and then if you're, I mean, if you're in a, a wind tunnel, obviously that's going to take a whole lot of time as well. Um, but if you're talking about a two hour fit, which is fairly standard um, for a comprehensive fit, utilizing a fitting bike by a qualified bike fitter, I would say anywhere between, you know, 250 and $400 is reasonable for that. Um, some services will um, include a follow-up appointment afterwards. Um, some will have, will include a virtual follow-up or email follow-up afterwards in some capacity. And it really depends on the market you're in too. Um, you know, there are bike fits that I've seen listed uh, and priced at $600 and $1,000. And often those are bike fits that utilize uh, some very expensive, fancy equipment. Um, and I think there is a time and place for that, um, for that equipment to be used and that technology to be used. I don't think that everybody needs it. Um, and I think a good question to ask is when you get all those data points and you get that very, very specific information, what are you going to do with it? How is it going to influence um, the outcome? And so, you know, I see, I see the need for it um, for some people and in some cases. Uh, and if some people just want that data, I mean, that's fine if they're just interested in it. But if it's not going to change the end result, maybe it's not all necessary. I think that's definitely a you know, a topic that's up for debate. <laughs> oh, it's a, it's all good information, and it's 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 always you know it's good to to kind of know going in um, what expectations should be. So you've been very thorough with that, and I like I've learned a ton. I appreciate it <laughs> very much for myself personally. Sure. I've had I mean I've had a professional bike fit fit take place, and it was definitely worth every penny I spent um, for sure. Um, and having those measurements, it's great because I can use them on any bike for the most part, you know, I mean, that gets me close enough before I, before I can get back in to see another bike fitter if I, if I need to. So it's pretty, 
pretty good information. And I, I do like the, the fact that you're talking about it as, an, as part of the investment package. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, in that price, you also have to consider the, um, the experience level of the person you're, you're paying to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's another good reason to vet the person that, that's doing a bike fit. Um, you know, if someone is charging $600 for a bike fit and they have very, very expensive equipment and they're giving you a lot of data points at the end, um, but that person doesn't have a well-rounded, uh, you know, have well-rounded expertise, um, you know, they might be really driven by that data, but they may not be able to reason their way through challenging, um, you know, situations and questions that arise during that process. So, you know, vetting the experience of that person is uh, is important. I mean, and like any professional, I mean, it, it can it can be very difficult. I mean, how do most people find a new dentist? <laughs> you know, they ask their friends. <laughs> so... Looking for recommendations. Yep. Yeah. Personal yeah. recommendations go a long way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I uh, I know even in Atlanta, we would have people drive for from three or four hours sometimes to come in and get a bike fit at the shop because um, of the quality of the fitters there. So I think it's something that's worth investing in a drive for too if there's not something in your town. Um, okay, to pivot to something a little fun before we wrap up, tell us – about riding in Switzerland because you moved to Switzerland in January. So tell us about riding in Switzerland and what yeah. it's, that's like. Yeah, it's like it's like being on vacation. <laughs> that's what it's like. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we, my wife and I, moved to Switzerland in January uh, to improve our quality of life and to be closer to the mountains. Um, and <laughs> from Atlanta, improve our quality of did life you, from Atlanta. Like, did you, like, Throw a dart at a map, or like <laughs> no, we went on vacation. <laughs> what do you think? We went on vacation in Switzerland. Uh, we went on mountain bike vacations. No, we did a trans-out mountain bike trip a, a handful of years ago, and we went through a corner of Switzerland. And I mean, the entire trip was pretty epic. But it, you know, Switzerland is just—I mean, it's incredibly beautiful. The Alps are—I mean, they—the Alps have had my imagination since I was a kid reading fairy tales. You know. Um, and then we came back a few years later or maybe a year later and went on a mountain bike trip, uh, and it, in Verbier. And I mean, it's just like paradise found really. And, uh, so we moved to Zurich so that we can, you know, work. We can't just live in a tiny, um, uh, Dorf, a tiny village in the, in the mountains and have careers. But I mean, it's just fantastic. The, the access to the outdoors for living in a city is just unprecedented. I'm, and it's really fantastic. I mean, I can be on um, single track in, and gravel trails or gravel roads within two kilometers of my house. Wow. And I live in the city. And you can follow those gravel roads, the length of the ridge line, as I look across the lake, the length of the ridge line to the end of the lake, and then you get into the foothills of the Alps, and you just keep going. I mean, you don't have to ride on paved roads here if you don't want to. So I think I need to come. I know. I'm like, I for real think we need to do a girls gone gravel trip. We have a bike fitter there. Everybody can get their bike fit done. Uh, and a guide. Chloe's like, I'm not guiding you. I'm going to drop you. I, uh, we can go explore together for sure. I don't know what I'd call myself a guide. You know, the dialect is there, you know, so I'm learning German, which is, a, you know, and that's an adventure in itself. Um, 
<clears throat> but German is not, you know, German is not, or High German is not the language spoken here. Swiss German is spoken here, at least in Zurich, and which is a dialect of German, but it's a very, it's a very strong dialect. And so, you know, in Zurich, there's, you know, it has its own dialect, and then you go to the next city, and it has its own dialect, and you go into the Alps, and every valley has its own dialect. So, I mean, we're not going to understand anything. <laughs> we're just, we're just going to be beer. That's oh, all yeah. we need to beer and yeah. cheese. Beer and bikes. Yeah. That's all you need. Those two words. And um. bathrooms. <laughs> Three Bs. Beers, bikes, and bathrooms. Oh, bathrooms, yeah. Um, well, cool. Well, Chloe, thank you so much for your time. So you have a new, well, by the time this podcast comes out, you're, you should have a website up um, where people can come find you and get kind of more insight on bike fitting and connect to some of the um, services that you're hoping to offer online. How can people connect with you? That's right. I'm on my first ever website. Um, after much urging, I'm going to delve into the world of media. Um, my website will be chloemurdockpt.com. That's C-H-L-O-E-M-U-R-D-O-C-K-P-T.com. And there will be a lot of great information on there about, um, about bike fitting, uh, specific information to prevent injuries, uh, how to prevent saddle sores, how to pick a saddle, all kinds of cool information for um, runners, endurance athletes, primarily runners and cyclists, um, as well as ways that they can connect with me for remote services and in-person services if they're here in Switzerland. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you uh, taking time out of your evening in Switzerland to spend with us. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. The Girls Gone Gravel podcast is a production of Live Feisty Media. Subscribe, like, and comment on your listing platform. Our producer is Taylor Mahan Rudolph. You can follow us on all of the socials at Girls Gone Gravel or visit our website at girlsgonegravel.com. <laughs>